welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. What's going on, everybody? We got a nice, scary follow-up to our Carpenter episode la- or two weeks ago, mm-hmm. and uh, we think we have a real treat for you today. Yeah, this one's going to be fun. And to kick it off, I have a, uh, a very interesting question for you, Tay. If I was an imitation, a perfect imitation, how would you know it was really me? Well, there's always a test we could perform, Tim. Yeah, but I uh, i mean, I don't have a prosthetic thumb on me. Oh. Uh, and, you know, like a locked off shot uh, <laughs> as I as I would cut into it and, uh, and let it fall into a Petri dish. So I don't know how we're going to go about that. But that's really what this movie delves into is the extreme horror at play when you're not sure if you're yourself and if you're really not sure that anyone around you is who they say they are and although admittedly this could be the premise of many films if you're not aware of what we're talking about today we are discussing john carpenter's 1982 classic cult classic perhaps Mm -hmm. the thing yeah so this movie uh concerns an american research base in antarctica that's infiltrated by an alien that can assume the shape of anything it attacks The social fabric of the small community quickly erodes as each resident realizes they can no longer trust those around them. As uh, Tay said, it was directed by John Carpenter. It was released June 25th, 1982, and stars Kurt Russell, Keith David, and Wilfred Brimley, among an otherwise uh, cult ensemble cast. Uh, And it's currently available to rent online. Uh, Make sure to check the show notes to see exactly where, if you haven't seen it yet. And you know what? We'll jump on the tagline real early today, Mm -hmm. too. The tagline for The Thing is, man is the warmest place to hide. That's a, that's a phenomenal tagline. That I think really it's great. Yeah. I think it is completely in line with the tone that the movie was trying to send out. It was in line with the marketing of the film. And unfortunately, like none of that went according to plan for The Thing. No. No, The Thing really did not perform as expected. With John Carpenter, it was probably the first time he had any money to throw around on a set. Uh, It probably came close to break records, if not broke records, for uh, amount of money spent on a monster. Yeah, special effects monsters were not not, uh, given that much latitude in Mm -hmm. filmmaking at this time. Well, and that's the interesting thing when you're thinking about monster movies is the the idea that you would always underinvest in the main subject of the story, so... I think Carpenter probably worked really hard to be able to, number one, hire on some legit talent uh, in the form of Rob Bottin and a 35-person effects team and uh, eventually give them a million and a half dollars. I think originally budgeted for something like 750000 Originally, Originally, it was 250000 oh, Then it was goodness. bumped to seven fifty when they saw the size of, the, of uh, Rob Bottin's team. Mm-hmm. And then it was literally doubled to 1.5 million by the end of production because they went so far over but i think the studios were willing to accept that because they were able to submit us like a different budget breakdown by the end that kind of took away some expensive scenes and in place really allowed them to focus in on creating one of the most visual visceral and visually stunning creatures ever put into a film yeah it still holds up to today it's still frightening it's still um horrifying it still turns your stomach if it had all that going for it why didn't it work when it came out though well we can dive into a lot of these issues Mm -hmm. i think a lot of it makes sense and a lot of it kind of is a little baffling to be honest like so there's two sides of this i mean you have 
the era of this movie when it was coming out, uh, <laughs> kind of tragic timing for John Carpenter on this one. It came out two weeks after Steven Spielberg's E.T., The Extraterrestrial, which broke so many records mm-hmm. and really set a new standard for how to approach alien life in film and uh, in more childish or no, in more child-centered stories well, that also... allowed like things like family mm-hmm. to be a pre- part of like the story. Yeah. Uh, and then you have something completely contrasting that in this film. Yeah, well, E.T. is so optimistic. Yes, right? optimism the, is part of it, too. It's the idea that if something crash-landed in your world, you know, children would understand that it could be a friendly presence. It could be some. It could be an opportunity to help, not a help, not an opportunity to capitalize on on a um, on an organism that's different from ours, or uh, an opportunity to mitigate a threat. And then two weeks later, to have John Carpenter burst onto the scene with his take on what would happen if you encountered an alien, uh, it's highly pessimistic. It's gross. Uh, it's really cynical about how man would respond to it. And uh, you see that maybe, maybe it wasn't the uh, the slam dunk that that you wanted from the from the alley oop from Steven Spielberg in terms of alien movies in summer of '82. Yeah, you figure maybe this would have just been a nice, uh, you know, almost like a follow up punch. Yeah, but it doesn't land like that. And I think also part of this is like just the drastic contrast of the settings between the two films. We have literally suburban America versus Antarctic station in the Mm -hmm. middle of nowhere, completely isolated from the rest of the world. And these two settings allow for such different interpretations of what would have to happen if a group of people encountered an extraterrestrial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it just, I think probably ET and the effect it had on the moviegoer psyche at the time, probably just made, the thing that much more palpable it moved people so so much further in the other direction that the whiplash was that much more profound when they went to see this but the interesting thing too is it didn't even perform well among like genre critics it did not do well as a horror movie the best things you can find are people saying the effects are great but they go too far the characters are not fleshed out we know nothing about them and they don't react the way we think they should it's a horrible movie but you should see it for the effects maybe that's the most generous review you can generally find yeah a lot of critiques on the ambiguity of the film too Mm -hmm. um but you're you're spot on like even amongst genre aficionados and completists this was something that was rebuked quite a bit for like upon release um i guess we should mention that blade runner the original (laughs) film yeah. by ridley scott also came out the same exact week as john carpenter's the thing yeah so this was one heck of a movie summer it was a great summer and i mean to uh you know to the thing's credit uh, blade runner didn't do too well either that's right it was considered yeah. to be highly inaccessible and too long and too expensive and too boring which is also again we we found a, a way to appreciate these movies later often movies that are just the product of someone who's a visionary, at least in terms of certain qualities of film, how far you can push something in terms of artistic aesthetic, you know, Ridley Scott essentially made the way that we think about cyberpunk now, or think about the rainy future. Yeah. Still Um, the exact same images we mm -hmm. see in films today are from Blade Runner. And I think John Carpenter realized once he had the money, 
what he could do with this concept and why not take it as far as possible. And, you know, well, I'll, I'll try to find the quote I had heard that, you know, this kind of broke him because he put so much into this and he thought it would be great. He thought he was basically hitting the target right on, but he was so far ahead of people's expectations that they found it to be gratuitous and uh, like uh, uh, verging on offensive, even among people who like horror movies, which is, um, I would say, impressive in hindsight. Well, maybe let's take a let's take a couple steps back here to when we first saw this film. Mm-hmm. Like, do you remember your first screening of this? Uh, this was definitely one of the ones where, again, I think in the last episode we talked about sort of our our background with horror. And I, as a kid and a teenager, wasn't really into horror. So once I sort of got the nerve up to get into it, when I realized that horror is this very important part of the film culture and the film world. So many directors cut their teeth on horror and I wanted to see where these directors came from. I got myself a copy of the thing and I put it on and it was, yeah, like it's a gripping experience. Um, It's something where the way that it's directed and the way that you see things, um, you're not really prepared for what happens shot by shot. This creature changes and it never looks the same. It takes on colors and shapes and makes noises and has, you know, fluids and goo and all these things that it just never... You never get to establish a relationship with the look of this creature as you kind of do with, like, say, a xenomorph. So right, I, I it was terrifying. It was a great first experience. I would... Like, that's actually a really good point, maybe to jump off on a quick tangent on. Like, just the, the fact that the creature never stops shape-shifting really doesn't allow a sense of familiarity to develop Mm -hmm. with the audience. So you are constantly wondering what's coming around the next corner, even though you know something is there. Mm -hmm. You just don't know what shape or form it's going to take. A great point. Yeah, you never know what you're going to see. And this this kind of subverts the idea that whether or not you show the monster, it's another concept we talked about in the last episode, where if you're going to show the monster, you have to be sure it'll be scarier than what the audience can picture in their mind. And this kind of takes a detour away from that entire argument and says what if the monster cut by cut shot by shot never looks the same there might be for lack of a less horrible pun some connective tissue between (laughs) one monster and the next one it's constantly growing new heads it's it's sprouting tentacles it's it's it has a mouth come out like a like a venus fly trap it it takes on all these different forms and you never get to you never get to the point where you can say at least i know what it looks like so when we cut back to it it's something i've seen before that's right yeah no sense of familiarity and constant sense of dread about what this thing could become and that's where your 10 percent of the entire movie's budget goes into the effects is that yeah. every single shot rob botin and his team had to say okay where are we taking it this time what's it gonna that's look right. like three seconds after we saw it the time before because it's not like you can just grab the props from the last time or the props mm. or prosthetics from the last time you used the monster set up. You, you have to literally create something new. Yeah. There might be some overlap, but there's so many cases like with the spider head where one shot is the spider legs coming out, which is almost certainly a reverse shot of it's, them being pulled It's actually in. a puppet. Yeah, right, right. And, but that, like at that point, the head is on the floor. So yes. you can tell, you know, if you're Something's looking for it, it someone's puppeting it. 
But then the next time it's moving across the floor, so it can't be set in the it's, same place, which means it's an entirely different prop. Which that's right. It actually that I know for a fact that that was a robotic mm-hmm. controlled remote. Or or again with the spider head, the earlier phase of it where its tongue is reeling in and pulling it across the floor. Which that's right. again, I assume there's a little winch inside that they set up that's just reeling in this tongue. The the amount of work just when you cannot say like okay we've made you know. A mask for the creature as seen from the front and a mask for the creature that's going to go on an animatronic and the mask for the creature that goes on our actor Mm -hmm. as he's running around. And that's it. We might need a couple other insert shots, but that's it. There's, you know, this movie, what what is this movie? Uh, Around 120 minutes? Yeah. Um, Hour 50, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, an hour 50, what, like an hour of this movie? The the creature is in the scene. It's happening. It's there. And... We're going to definitely get into a bit more throughout the pod, but you don't actually know if the creature's on, like, yeah, in the well, that's, scenes that's half the time, funny, too. That's the funny thing, too, is that this movie is not only scary when you're looking at this thing that your mind can't comprehend, your mind doesn't have a blueprint for. You're seeing a dog's face split open and its skull fall out, or a body open up and cut a doctor's arms off as he's trying to defib a patient. Those things are scary enough, but the concept at play, I think, delves right into our subconscious. And uh, and there's actually some, I think, some very juicy philosophy at play in why this movie is scary. Well, I think the very concept of isolation mm-hmm. is something that horror has always done a great job of cashing in on. Mm-hmm. Because it's a very relatable fear. It's something that I think almost all humans innately uh, have thought about and wish not to happen to themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's we, we like being around other people for the most part, even introverts mm-hmm. don't exist in a vacuum. They yeah. exist within a society and without yeah. the rules and regulations of society around you, a lot of other social conventions crumble. And then you add a monster to the mix from outer space and you have a whole new set of emotions like paranoia, uh, but like cranked up to 11. Yeah. Well, it really, like, when you start to question whether or not someone else is what they are, or if they're a abject threat to you, like yes. this monster is, or even further, where they, they do start pushing it towards the end about whether or not it can make so perfect a copy that maybe you can't tell. What if it made a copy of your your psyche and your psychology? So how, how would you even know? Yeah. Right? You We have no idea the capabilities of this creature... This stuff really starts to question the basis of reality, right? These are actual questions that philosophers spend a lot of time on, like the I think, therefore I am, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what consciousness is. All is that all that is based around the idea that you can never truly know another person, right? right? We have all these social conventions and we have these biological impulses um, around, you know, connection to other beings, to our children, uh, to people we love and things like that. But at the end of the day, the only thing that's for sure is what's happening behind your eyes. So to have this whole movie based around the idea that you can't really know about these other people, it's this heightening of a concept that's at play in our normal daily lives. And it causes you to question the very basis of your reality, the very fabric of the world you live in. So there are the higher levels of that of just like, oh, well, a little Antarctic research-based community would break down very quickly if people couldn't trust one another. Yeah. But your grip on reality will start to slip if you don't know that anyone else is actually what they are. 
right? It, it verges on Lovecraftian again. Yeah, yeah. It's not, I wouldn't say that there are Lovecraftian influences. I think it, it reaches there when you start interrogating what this creature would do to a psyche, let alone what it does to human bodies and to flesh, you know? Yeah. And I, I feel like all the tension and, uh, human emotion is really well earned by this movie. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not like any of these characters are being over dramatic in their paranoia. This is like a genuine, this, all the emotions by these 12 men in the film are so genuine. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I guess like they are, it's so easy to identify with the characters feeling almost every step that they're feeling. Mm-hmm. So I, as far as these early reviewers go about the sense of nihilism and the defeatist outlook of the film, these characters are acting so rationally. And I think that is what makes the film so much scarier because they're not acting on any like higher level of movie drama here. They are acting on like what they're seeing, like you're saying, like you just said, and what they're seeing is horrifying and is like, has literally the potential to completely take away your sense of reality. Mm-hmm. Well, and that, that's another thing I wanted to talk about is I think the direction in this is um, like among the, the conversation for best of all time. I think the choices Carpenter made in how he tells his, his cast to react to stuff. Cause I think there's a really easy way to do this movie where when people see a dog, become this spaghetti monster that's absorbing other dogs or any of the things that they see, you have people screaming and making noises and running around. And every time this stuff happens, people are almost entirely silent unless they're the one being attacked. Mm -hmm. People who are being attacked make a lot of noise. The witnesses are in shock the whole time and it's solid shock it's so effective there is no big reactions and again i've never obviously i've never seen anything like this and i i have lived a very comfortable life i don't have to i've not been to war i've not had to see a lot of insanely stressful things in real life but it does feel more realistic to me the fact that they they slowly walk up to this dog cage or they see bennings uh kneel down in the snow with his not quite imitated hands yet and he starts doing the body snatchers scream Mm -hmm. and they just you know obviously they're 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 people who are used to difficult conditions there there are arguments to be made that mccready is a is a vietnam vet it's all this stuff beyond the scenes but the way that is directed how how quiet and how almost serene the terror is underneath this light surface is uh i think the the tension is so much more palpable and it's so much scarier for it and you know what i think the movie benefits from this as well because it's you don't have any wasted moments where the characters are arguing about this is real or this is not real Mm. like uh i i don't believe what i'm seeing no they all believe what they're seeing because they all see something truly horrifying and because we get to see it as an audience too we understand like the logic behind all the action behind the characters for the most part. I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think it's really easy to see where almost all the emotions and actions from each character come from because you've seen what they've seen and you know that this, if you saw it in real life would greatly impact your way of seeing reality. Yeah. I think the motivation is always very well established without being overwrought without needing to be said, right? Like you do have scenes where, they take the, he takes enough time, which is maybe just three minutes, where when uh, Blair is first explaining what he thinks, 
or and McCready too. And you know, Childs is saying, "You believe this voodoo? I don't believe this voodoo. Do you?" He's the only person in the room who's saying stuff like that. The rest of them are at different levels of acceptance already. And then a scene later where the suspicions start really going, where they they realize that it could be anybody after they had torched Bennings. Uh, you know, Windows runs down the hall and grabs himself a shotgun. Yeah. Every time someone makes a move, I think it's something that you could see yourself doing, but also for such a large cast, I think they're, they all are fairly distinct in sort of their attitudes. Surprisingly, right? yes. Which is, and again, like I know there are, there are quotes out there of Carpenter saying, you know, maybe I took on too many characters. It's hard to make the scenes interesting, which is something we've talked about before with Soderbergh is how do you make a big ensemble scene interesting to look at? And yeah, group shots. Carpenter maybe doesn't always have it, but... I think the direction is spot on in terms of how these people are motivated. You get time with Blair where he's very carefully analyzing the problem. You get time with McCready where he's just really trying to play cleanup and, and being forced into a leadership role because he's the one who thinks he has the best handle on it. Right. I, I think, I think it's all super effective. And, and I'd say to the critics at the time who were saying these characters are not fleshed out or they're not understood enough I don't know if maybe there was just a standard at the time where if you're going to do something like this, the reactions have to be bigger. There has to be more dialogue saying, well, I'm a Vietnam vet and this is this right. is why I'm more in charge. explanation, description of backgrounds and yeah. stuff like that. I think putting things below the dialogue line, however you want to term that concept, is so much more effective and it really draws you into this environment. Well, like it does resemble a number of other you know scientific exploration films right off the top of my head i'm thinking like a prometheus style film where Mm -hmm. you have a group of very like not very but like incredibly talented at what they do scientists uh in all these specialized fields uh the best of the best kind of thing Mm -hmm. and they're all going to some like unknown location to discover so the thing reminds me a lot of these kinds of uh ensemble groups but yet there's no there's no part of me, at least watching it now, you know, I've been watching this movie since I was like 12 years old, mm-hmm. but there's no part of me now that is like, I want to know more about that character's background or history. It doesn't feel necessary in this. You you know so much about them by how they react. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's like, I, I listened to the commentary, so I know that John Carpenter said McCready was a Vietnam vet, Yeah, but that doesn't need to fulfill a major role in the film it doesn't need to be a dramatic beat or anything like that yeah no and that's the thing right like if you look up uh bill lancaster's script it's got a great cast page where each of the characters are described very basically and i think it shows why you don't need more like mccready is 35 helicopter pilot likes chess hates the cold the pay is good you know blair is 50 senior biologist edgy inquisitive overworked that's all you really need to know about these people because they're just going to be thrust in this situation and they're going to react and you don't to connect with them. You don't have to know that they have a wife and daughter at home or what their experience is. And that's why they're good at this or why they're not good at this. You, I think you connect with them because you're afraid of being in their situation. Exactly. And that, that's you, all it has to be. And you know, now that I'm thinking now that I'm like racking my brain for all these moments of like personal backstory, one of the only ones I can think of is Gary after uh, after after Bennings dies. Yeah, after Bennings dies, he's like, "I've known Bennings for fifteen years." Yeah, like like it's that's almost the only reference to the past, exactly by any of them. Right? They're all people who, and again, like I like that you mentioned Prometheus because there's definitely 
similarities at play, but also I don't get the feeling that any of these people are like the best at their job. Right. It's Maybe, not like they're being like, taken to another solar system. Yeah. Some of them are professionals. Like Gary, definitely good at his job. He knows what he's doing right on the base. Blair is good at his job. You know, McCready is good at drinking J&B. Mm-hmm. Right. And like, he's obviously a good helicopter pilot too. He never crashes, but like you don't get the impression like, he's here because he was the best of the best. And I love that too. It's very, there's a blue collar aspect to it. It's very every man, you know? Yeah. And yeah. like, I guess that's what I mean though. Like it's like a group of like guys who are clearly like experts in their field, but in this film, it's not important that like their backstory and what, why they're good at what they do or why they were brought on this mission is not important because the movie isn't about a mission or like why they're in Antarctica. It's about what they find when they get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I mean, outside of Blair using a computer to sort of analyze it, no one makes any amazing, like, expert leaps about it either. To be honest, that was mostly for the audience, too. Yeah. They added just... the scenes in post where he's looking at the computer, and it's like, probability that one or yeah. more members of your crew are infected. It's probably, like, the least graceful part of it the is. movie. It is. It's not very graceful. much just like we maybe can't trust the audience to extrapolate out and be like, what would happen if this thing was on any other continent, a continent with more fauna, a a continent with more people, what would happen? And it's like, oh, it would literally like the entire biosphere would be one being. Yeah. It would assimilate so fast. They're saying like, as soon as the thing would reach human contact, it would be 27,000, 2,700 hours. Something like that, yeah. Uh, before complete world assimilation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a little on the nose when Blair gets that message from his 1980 computer. It's very, uh, what's the computer in Alien? Mother? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, it's, like, Mother is, like, you know, obviously in the future it's an AI. This is 1982. It's supposed to be 1982. Yeah. <laughs> it's got, like, a little Atari system showing how one cell takes over another. But, I mean, I can understand it's necessary. I appreciate Carpenter taking that step, even though obviously he didn't necessarily pay off with audiences at the time. Uh, one, an important or an interesting thing to maybe delve into is just the 2011 remake, which I just watched this week to sort of get some context. I'm sure listeners out there probably heard the story. There's their very famous story about how for this movie, they made all the practical effects like Rob Bottin had made them. And then the executives didn't think it looked good. So they painted over all of them with CGI, which looked I, I would say objectively worse when you, you you look at the comparisons on YouTube. We'll put a link. It's uh, very depressing. But honestly, I didn't know much else about the 2011 remake and I was interested or not remake, but uh, it's prequel. But it right, very much it's remakes about, the concepts. It's about the Norwegian camp yeah. that ends up like being the initiating point of this. film, yeah. Which is largely staffed by visiting Americans because, you know, they're making an American movie, even though it was made by a Norwegian guy. Um, but you have to like make Americans be the problem, don't you? Yeah, but they weren't. Okay. It's just, it's not, it's not good. I'm sorry. Like it, it stars Mary Elizabeth Winstead. She's very good. Uh, big Joel fans. Edgerton, big fan of him too. Big I think fans. he's good at what he does, but, um, no, all the things we just talked about are the issues that they make when they sort of plug this idea into your standard movie conventions. Everyone has more backstory. There's way more in it about, like, a Norwegian scientist being like, no, we have to preserve it because I need it for a Nobel Prize. I have to take it back, and we need it for these reasons. There's also just, like, 
They do say that in the 1982 thing. They do. They mention There's it. There's one like brief Benning's, mention of it. Benning's mentioning it where he's like, no, we can't burn it. That'll get someone a Nobel Prize. And literally 30 seconds later, it's assimilated Benning's. Yeah. Um, and he gets burned. This is a way longer arc. And they also, like, they show they show the uh, the alien craft, like, starting up. It's just the whole thing is a bummer of going down roads that you did not need in the original obviously not learning the lessons that made the original iconic and and why it's lasted this long and sorry i keep saying the original it's also not the original yeah uh, the 1982 yeah. just to clarify is not the original version of the thing yeah that go that credit goes to the 1951 film by christian nyby and howard hawks uh and it's called the thing from another world which is also based on the 1938 novella by james campbell called who goes there yeah, and uh, I actually, I've had it saved this whole week, and I did not get around to reading it. I really do want to check out that short story. Um, Asimov apparently was a really big fan of John Campbell's. He yeah. apparently did a lot for the genre. So I would like to check that out. But yeah, when we say the original, we're talking about the original compared to 2011, but the original is the remake of um, The Thing from Another World, which Carpenter was a big fan of. And he definitely, yeah. it sounds like he took this in this direction only because he knew he could do it differently than Nyby and and Hawks and knew that they had the money for the effects and they had the the technology for the effects at this point. Yeah, I did read that Carpenter was very hesitant because he was such a fan of the original. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, say what you will about a 1951 science fiction film, The Thing from Another World is brilliantly directed and mm-hmm. has some incredible special effects for a 1951 yeah. film that were not... That, things that were not being done in other 1950s science fiction, and that was yeah. a decade of schlocky, bad science fiction mm-hmm. films that I'm not personally a fan of as you know, much as I'm a fan of cheesy stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not my era. But The Thing from Another World is a standout, one of the best 50s movies. And so that's a recommendation, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a, it's a really good one. It's worth watching. It's great to see how it sort of stands in relation because Carpenter was such a fan of Hawks and of that movie. And I, I like that he, you know, he wasn't really interested in just remaking it outright. I think this, if I if I remember the research right, this movie sort of started as a studio project first. They knew they wanted to remake it, and they eventually brought it to Carpenter, who figured out, I can, but I'm doing it different. I'm not just trying to redo Hawks. Yeah, uh, I believe Universal Studios bought the rights to this movie mm-hmm. before Carpenter even directed Halloween yeah. in 78. So, like... They they went through a couple different directors. I can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, Toby Hooper was yeah. one of them, and someone else. Yeah, it sounds like Toby Hooper's was going to be a bit goofier. Um, yeah, they didn't like his vision of tone. it. But uh, just sort of a parallel as well is um, you have in 1956 the invasion invasion of the body snatchers, which is then remade in 78. Um, and I guess Carpenter did not like the 78 one at all because he felt it did not depart far enough. So that's really what he was trying to do with the thing here in comparison to the thing from another world. So maybe we should get into our scene. Yeah, I think it's about time. Yeah. Half hour in. Guess we'll take it from the top. Got a real nice, quick, short summary for you today. Mm-hmm. Uh, starting at an hour 1741 into the film and going to an hour 2636 into the film. So it's about a nine minute scene total. As the remaining group begins to suspect RJ McCready, played by Kurt Russell. He forces everyone into a blood test to determine who, if any, are actually the thing uh, disguising as a human 
So the scene stars almost the entire remaining cast, so I'm not going to go through everybody because we will discuss individuals as we go through the scene today, but uh, this was definitely one of the standout scenes for us watching the film. Uh, Mm -hmm. From the very first time I saw this movie, this scene caught me so off guard. And upon doing a bit more research, I think this was in the commentary uh, by Carpenter and Kurt Russell, that this scene is the pretty much the sole reason Carpenter agreed to direct this film because he could see the potential from a scene like this mm-hmm. carrying through the rest of the movie. And bef- that was kind of the something we researched after we decided to do this scene. So we feel like we picked the right one for discussing the thing as a whole. Yeah, it definitely, I think it, it gets the column A and column B that holds up this movie, one of which is the interpersonal tension and suspicions, and the other is the effects. Um and we wanted to talk about so many of the cast members, too, so this scene yeah. really works well on that level. Yeah, absolutely. So right at the beginning of this scene, we do lose um, one of the... I mean, we're they're all great, so I don't even know why I'd say one of the one of the better ones. They're, they're all fantastic, but we do lose um, Richard Masseur's uh, Clark as yeah. he, uh, he tries to rush McCready. McCready, at this point, is basically holding everyone hostage with, with a flamethrower. Uh, with a flamethrower and a, a bundle of dynamite, basically... Assuming the role of leadership by force because he he knows he can trust himself. There's a great line earlier where he says, I know I'm me and you're not all attacking me so that I know that there at least one of you is also human. And uh, he's figured out a way that he wants to go about it. And uh, before he can really start his process, he's trying to get a couple of them tied up that they, they have a better idea that may have been infected. Um, Clark had been working with the dogs. The doctor had been working with the cadavers. Um, and, uh, Clark rushes him with a scalpel and, uh, he, uh, he shoots him point blank right in the head, right in the skull, right in the middle of the forehead, a classic gunshot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, it's unfortunate. I really like the presence that, uh, Clark brings to it. Yeah. Like the quiet, mm-hmm. strong soldier type. Yeah. And, and the, the dog lover, right? Which the dog I, lover. Yeah. It's an important role because there's a lot of dog death in this. He is um, very much a sympathi- uh, sympathizing point. Yeah, he uh, he he flips out when they they put a dog out of its misery. He flips out later when they find out that Blair killed the remaining dogs, as one should. Um, he's a he's a great presence, but um, he uh, I think two or three times they set up with a split diopter shot that he's got a scalpel yeah. in his hand and he's sort of moving up on McCready and uh, he go he goes for it and uh, you know unlike. Um, Unlike Bautista and the scalpel in uh, Blade Runner 2049, he doesn't connect. Right. So a couple things to break down just based on what you just said. Split diopter shot, for those who don't know, is basically two lenses functioning on the same camera that allow two uh, part of the foreground and part of the background to stay in Mm -hmm. very clean focus. Yeah. Uh, So this allows you to have like a close up very uh, close to the foreground of the frame and something in focus that's also important to the shot in the background of the shot. And they both work together, kind of blurring the middle ground and combining two shots in one. Mm -hmm. It's a very classic film uh, kind of method to do something like this. And it's not something you see very often anymore, but it's really excellently pulled off in this movie. Um, There's like four or five of them. Yes. When McCready walks into the lab to talk to Fuchs. Um, Yeah, there's Clark and the scalpel McCready. And then also later in this scene, you have McCready in the foreground left of screen and the group on the couch in the background right of screen and uh, it's always a very palpable feeling when you see it like i you always you're like okay like there's because there's that 
telltale line of of out of focus right right around in the, the center of the screen yeah and yeah you don't see it very much anymore i do think maybe because it's a bit of a blunt tool but it is you a, can tell from yeah. carpenter's influences hawks and, and older cinema rio bravo it's definitely something that he loves and there are still times where it pops up every now and then i do know that somewhat iconically it was used in toy story 4 where they created a split diopter Funny. shot in animation interesting right? i never saw toy story 4 yeah so, so that, that's really neat, but it is a, it, it's a cool concept and it's a good shot to be able to, to recognize. Yeah. It's a, just something, like Tim said, it, it pops up a lot in this movie, so they must have just, you know, kind of had the split diopter set up mm-hmm. on location and used it when they thought it was appropriate. But usually this is something you see, like, in one shot of a mm-hmm. movie and it's never seen again. Well, and, like, I'd say one of the shots is very classic, like, Hitchcock style. Like, the, the shot of the scalpel yes. is very much, yeah. like they want the audience to know this person has this thing. And like in Hitchcock, it's always like a key or a gun or a bomb or, or something. Right. So very Hitch Hitchcock esque to, uh, to use the split diopter that way. But I mean, if you want to read into the theme, if you want to do, you know, some film school essayist uh, style stuff, like that line of, um, of blurred area in the middle to separate one character and another is right in the theme here. The fact that no one, no one can be together. No one is on the same plane. No one is sure about one another. There is this barrier in between everyone. So Great point. Yeah. So pretty literal use of the split diopter. Yeah. Um, the other technical aspect of what uh, that I wanted to discuss based on what you just said, uh, focusing on Clark's death still, the point-blank shot uh, of Clark charging uh, Kurt Russell's character McCready and McCready turning and shooting him so point-blank was actually very dangerous yeah it's not like if you if you ever watch we we recommend or james recommended on the on the thing um vfx reacts if you ever watch the stunt reacts on corridor crew they'll talk about how like you feel a blank in your chest if someone fires it close enough it can bruise you and like for eyes and and your face it's super dangerous yeah so they had to work really carefully and like when i was listening to the commentary you know for those of you who know anything about john carpenter he's not one to like express fear or weakness and in this moment of the film the commentary he was like i was very scared for richard masseur i was worried about his safety very much Mm -hmm. we just knew there's not many ways we could do the shot so i don't remember what they had to do to the gun but it still is a blank and they just had to be very careful with where with the directionality of the gun and they had to kind of use an angle to make it look like he connected with Masur's character uh, Clark far- firing past him on the on the far side of the camera or above or something yeah. like that yeah there's there's more to it than what you see in the film obviously it's angled perfectly so you it looks very good mm-hmm. it, like it's not like this is something we're calling out or anything for being a visual hack this is something that looks totally legit it just is something that for those of you who don't know blanks really hurt and uh, this is a really dangerous piece of technicality in the mm-hmm. film so yeah definitely a very sort of a real dance i'm sure to what they figured out a lot of rehearsal to make sure that you know you don't you don't get a black eye you don't lose an eye well right? also you, you still have to shoot with this actor a little bit i know mm-hmm. this is like his death but you still need his you're body. out of order you never know right? yeah you, where, you where can't have this. uh you can't risk hurting an actor midway through a production especially but like really at all obviously you don't mm-hmm. want an actor to hurt but yeah, essentially by, you know, by killing Clark, I think McCready makes it clear what he's willing to do. Because to that point, you know, Childs and Gary, they're both sort of, you can see that they're kind of considering the idea that they've got him outnumbered. He can't shoot them all, right? And Childs is really saying like, you're not tying me up. You, you can kill me first. And McCready's trying to make it clear. I will kill you. I don't want to. 
then he kills Clark when he rushes him. So it really... And Childs is then next scene tied up. <laughs> yeah. I, the edits in this scene verge on like comedic in their timing where... That one is, they, yeah, They sure. cut just like that and then, yeah, they're all tied up and they're ready and McCready sort of unveils his new test because there was a test that the doctor had mentioned earlier in the movie. Yeah, copper. Yeah. That then it it's no longer an option because somebody sabotages it. Someone who's been infected is, is the thing. Um, so McCready figures out very wily that, um, you know, and any, it should be noted. He figures this out based on the scene prior on the spider head. Yeah. yeah. So he sees the spider head sort of fall off of, um, Norris, uh, Norris. Thank you. Just a, a big old cast. Very impressive. I, I got yeah. all the names down yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> so that, yeah, the spider head comes off of Norris and that makes McCready. I do also just want to mention jumping over speed. Another great thing about how they react to something when they see it is they see the spider head, which has this great shot over McCready's shoulder where you see it sort of scuttling out of the room. And then Palmer sees it and he goes, you got to be kidding me again. No one <laughs> screams. No one flips out. Yeah. They just torch it. You got to be kidding yeah. me. It's so it's it's like it's they're they're tired. Right. All these guys are so tired. And then they torch it. And I do want to mention, too. Fire looks so good in this movie because it's real. It's it. It looks so good because it is real and it's almost never real anymore. Yeah, Kurt like Russell in, in our age learned how to use a flamethrower yeah. and used a flamethrower and dynamite in this movie mm-hmm. for real. It's which is so cool and like it pays and off. Flares, like, by the way, all the flares are real. The fire looks so cool. It looks really good. I'm sure it's not easy to film. Like I'm sure it's easier when you actually have fire. But so to make sure you're not blown out, to make sure you get the right color, and to make sure the color matches one scene to the next. Like, there's a lot of work that goes into that. Anyway, back to our scene, McCready realizes if one part of the hole can be the hole, then maybe that goes down to the, the cell level. So by testing someone's blood with a hot needle, the creature should, in theory, jump away from the hot needle, try to defend itself. And uh, the test begins and i think it's four unsuccessful tests in a it's row it's really it's really stacked to and build the tension which i love and i uh, there's i i still think you know maybe i've probably seen this movie almost a dozen times now and i think like three four five watches in i still was like which one is it which one does that, the blood test actually go wrong with that's the beauty of such a large cast yeah is like again as you just heard with me stumbling over it like palmer norris windows you kind of start to be like Okay, which one's the body on the table? Which one is tied up with the other guys? Mm-hmm. You, it's it's enough that like you kind of lose track between watches, and it lets you enjoy it every time. There's still these little surprises. I watch it too often now, yeah. though, so I can't it's, have it's, that surprise it, anymore. Verging on memorized, and yeah. I just now I, it's like embedded in my head when the person who's tested actually results in like it reacting. That's a yeah, mm-hmm. I, I know who that person is loud and clear now. Well, the thing the thing that kind of gives it away when the on my my most my rewatch last night, really looking at it is I love um, McCready has this fake hand that they use. Yeah, it's kind of like they, low in the frame. Yeah, and they set it up by using it in a in a previous shot with yeah. a safe test. And I love the idea of like instead of just for when you need it for the effect putting it in there and i think it kind of telegraphs it because you're like well this is a different angle oh his hand looks weird and pale Mm -hmm. and it's very stiff they use it in one shot prior so it's kind of set up in your mind as being well last time it was safe and then this time the creature jumps out of the petri dish and and i think that's why it is so surprising it's like just your brain visually tricking Mm -hmm. you 
I mean, and just for the defense of the movie's sake, uh, Kurt Russell was stuck out in the cold for quite a while. He might he have had bail. a very frozen okay. white hand. <laughs> well, he did, yeah. This is like 20 minutes after him pulling off that frosty look. Yeah. Where he comes in and he's he's wide-eyed and his beard is covered with snow. It's a it's a good look. Yeah. I mean, he can pull anything off. He can, especially, yeah. especially with a beard like that. Even the sombrero. But yeah, in case uh, visually you're looking for a better description, it's like a hand in the bottom of the frame that's obviously a prosthetic with the container of blood in the mm-hmm. hand. So that way when the actual the blood does react the second time, something shoots out of the blood container, obviously through the prosthetic yeah, hand. Yeah, it's a little puppet that pops up through some puppet. fake blood. Yeah. So um, it works incredibly well because, like Tim said, it's established during like the te- the unsuccessful test right before mm-hmm. it who i believe is it's for copper or for clark one of the two dead guys they yeah they do well yeah like that's really where like they set up this idea they they develop the idea that maybe this test doesn't work yeah because, because you like think three clark, or four in a row and then you definitely think clark must be infected yeah and then when his blood doesn't react childs is like this isn't working right yeah. this is no good and then gary or someone also starts talking like no i don't i don't believe in this and like Russell is looking away from the thing like he's already concerned with sort of the breakdown of of his control over the group and it jumps out at him. It's almost like he's lost faith in his own experiment and then it just you get like one of the very few jump scares in the film and it's Mm -hmm. not like a jump scare in the sense like there's this big boom. Yeah, it's like just like it's. Well, it you makes get this its little, noise. It, it makes this little screechy noise. Yeah. Like, you know, it's a little blood creature that already has, like, vocal cords mm-hmm. or something. Which is, which kind, is of, fun. kind of funny. And then, I mean, and then you get into, um, so Palmer is whose, te- whose blood they're testing. And he's tied up on the couch next to Gary and Child. And he just starts, he starts vibrating. He starts doing the monster dance. And it's so good because they're all stuck next to him. And they're screaming yeah, they're all to tied get them together, off the right? couch. Um, and it's... I don't. I didn't. Wasn't able to look any more into this. But at that point in the commentary, Carpenter said, "So none of this went. None of like his prosthetics went the way we wanted them to go." I like the prosthetics until I actually think the worst effect shot is in this scene. It and is. It's, it's um Windows's dummy. Yeah. In the in the in the the like jaw head of Palmer. It's right? like not even the first shot. It's like a couple like so it's basically. Later on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Palmer transforms into the thing and his head splits open into this big set of jaws that then quickly consumes Windows, who is waiting there stupidly with a flamethrower without reacting, which always kind of bugs me too. Um, and then he like bucks his body around like, yes. while he's clamped down on his head and the dummy just doesn't have the weight. It's it's fairly obvious. It's like an inflatable. Yeah, which is unfortunate because I actually like I can understand, you know, things not working the way they're supposed to. I like Palmer's transformation. It's see, that's it's, what I got the sense was actually what Carpenter's. Yeah, complaining that's about. What it wasn't it like this. Like. It wasn't this part with uh, Windows getting eaten i i like palmer's transformation i think i like his face kind of melts there's kind of a raiders vibe to it i think there must have been something that they had planned for like a more transitional shot whereas instead yeah. they just use it just cuts pretty away. hard you, they cut away and then they cut back to the him next, and like his, his head is coming apart and there are like bladders that are inflating and bursting yeah. in the next shot and again the whole like the reason it's tense is your feeling for Gary and Childs who are just tied up and they're yelling. shoulder to shoulder with this thing and they're flipping out. And again, like that's earned flipping out. Yes. That's not over the top. Like if you're tied to a couch with the thing that you know is like you shouldn't touch it is so horrifying. And and Kurt Russell's uh, 
McCready's flamethrower is malfunctioning and Windows is he's already shown himself to not be very active in these moments like earlier when yeah he's pretty when stupid. Blair is attacking all their communications equipment he's just sort of like cowering in the corner so he doesn't get the jump on the creature the yeah. creature bites him and throws him around and then just sort of like leaves him in the corner like sort of screeching and um what happens to Palmer's creature? It goes, it goes, uh, it goes out through the window, right? Yes. Yeah. They light it on fire, and this is kind of an homage to the original thing from Another World, which has one of the most insane stuntmen performances of all time. I would mm-hmm. say it's a, a scene where literally they ignite a stuntman on fire, and then continue to throw buckets of gasoline at him while he's on fire. So it's like liquid fire. <laughs> And I've never, honestly, I've never seen anyone else try something like this in a film. Yeah. And this is in 1951. This is yeah. Howard Hawks and Christian Nyby's version. And so this small bit, uh, there is a lot of flamethrower action in this film as well in the 1982 thing. But this moment in particular is what the moment they're homaging from the 1951 mm-hmm. version, uh, where you have the creature jump out the window, and then they, and then the McCre- wrestle uh, blows it up. Yeah, McCready has to go out there with a stick of dynamite, throws mm-hmm. it at it, and uh, really finishes it off. Mm-hmm. But I love that well he does. Um, so you have Windows's um, thing in the corner, just sort of covered in, in goo and slowly, slowly transforming. And Childs and Gary are still they're just screaming at McCready to come back in. Well, because yeah, he one. was outside like finishing off. Yeah. Uh, off uh, Palmer. Palmer thing. And then yeah. Windows is still in the corner, kind of starting to transform, mm-hmm. kind of starting to like turn into goo it's, it's a sadder transformation not quite as visceral yeah um the so two cool things to touch on here uh i guess i'll start with uh, i'll start with windows uh so when his body is like sitting seated in the corner of the room kind of slowly transforming that's two puppeteers behind the wall mm-hmm. puppeteering his legs and yeah, his head because his legs are moving in and out especially when he gets lit but the crazy part is not that there's puppeteers behind the wall. It's that there's puppeteers behind the wall, and then they light the whole unit on fire mm. with a flamethrower, and then the puppeteers are still behind that <laughs> behind the wall, wall that's on fire, just waiting to hear cut. Right? <laughs> and they, they react right until the end. Like they, by the time they stop moving, the shot still rolls, mm-hmm. and then there's still like an extra couple seconds before it actually cuts. Yeah. So that that's like some crazy effects work to me. Um, just in terms of like one of the reasons why this movie is such a standout, I think on so many levels is the risk of that. They put some of the actors in mm-hmm. And this next story was going to be actually my shout out, but because it fit into our scene, I was not going to use it as my shout out. Mm. When Kurt Russell goes to throw the stick of dynamite at Palmer, that is a real stick of some kind of explosive. I don't, I can't say for sure it was dynamite. I don't think so, mm-hmm. but that's Kurt Russell literally throwing an explosive at a prop and he did not know what the explosion was going to be like. So yeah. that, like, what you see is the real explosion and him really reacting. And in the commentary, he says, it felt like things went through me. Oh, it's a real, real blast wave to it. A right? real, real blast concussion. wave. And yeah. you you can see if you watch the cut really close because there's like Lynch's. a flash of light. Yeah. And he his body, like, is in a different position after the flash of light than when, yeah. it's, than when the light starts. And it's uh, just crazy to see. Like, and Kurt Russell... From listening to him in interviews and seeing him conduct himself, is a pretty macho, tough dude. Yeah, he's and he pretty, was willing he's to pretty do cowboy. a lot for yeah. his movies. And he said this was crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because he had his brain rot. Well, it's just like you know, just like with you know, um, like cadets with grenades and stuff, right? If you just fumble it, right, it's at your feet. 
And you got to run. You got like, or the grenade at the very beginning of this movie. Yeah, exactly. You fumble it and you blow yourself up and your helicopter. Right. So no, that that's wild. Um, It's just crazy that this is, you know, 40 years ago and you could ask actors to do something mm -hmm. like that. You cannot do this anymore. You cannot make a movie with fire, with flares, flamethrowers, dynamite. Can't really do any of this stuff anymore. Yeah. You can't insure for stuff like that. But what all of this achieves is that Gary and Childs and Nalls now trust that the test is effective. (laughs) So I love the tail end of this scene is edited so quickly where he goes back in and like it goes from like them screaming and explosions and fire and death. And then it cuts and it's quiet again and they're just testing the blood. And every time the blood is a negative test, it cuts and the person who was tested is now standing with a flamethrower. Yeah. It's like Nalls. He gets his test. Then he's like you see childs you see his face kind of be like oh that's the other thing too that's i think where they start okay let's yeah let's maybe jump into that they start to interrogate they start to suggest the idea that people are afraid that they might be the thing and they wouldn't know it. yeah after the first successful uh test on palmer yeah so like they all begin to actually fear for themselves yeah nulls and childs both clearly are acting as if they don't know what's going to happen, right? Which is different than yeah. the impression you get from McCready, where he's constantly like, I know I can only trust myself. I know what I am. And Which, then, by, I mean, by the end of the movie with McCready and Childs, they're kind of getting, they're, they're at the point where they're like, who, who knows, right? The only safe thing to do is to never have anyone leave this research station. That's right. Um, so I love that, yeah, they, they, they put it to there. But again, I find the editing to kind of have a bit of comedy to it where it's definitely comical. You, you, you test blood and then it's a negative and it hard cuts to Nalls now has a flamethrower and Childs now has a flamethrower. And then like it's just Gary left. And again, Gary, Gary gets this great line to close the scene yeah. and he gets to yell because it, it counts, right? It's well, where you would have a lot of emotion. Yeah, why don't we just throw that line in right here? Yeah. I know you gentlemen have been through a lot. And when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch. It's so good, and, and you so know, good. shout out, shout out to uh, to Gary, to Donald Moffat, and his massive eyebrows. Yeah, um, what a striking looking human being! Mm-hmm. I think he's a, a, a an odd looking man, but yeah. really cashes in on this performance. He's got. I'm, I'm blanking on what scene it is right now, but he's got a lot of empathy to him too. There is yeah. a part where he's talking to McCready about something. Is it is, is it him? Is he's it talking about his um, friend uh, Fuchs. No, it's when uh, not or Bennings. Bennings. It's when he's Bennings talking about dies. Bennings. He's very sad. It's a very uh, like in an otherwise rather stoic movie, very manly movie. Um, uh, there's a lot of emotion there, and I really appreciate that. I think he 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 adds something without again not nothing is over the top in this except the effects. Yeah, and I, I, maybe it's just uh, his watery eyes. I think he's just kind of got some like teary yeah. eyes going, and he's uh, got those sad good blue drama. eyes and and, and a, maybe a bit of a dopier face, which I yeah. say in a in a good way. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's a that's an asset for a character actor. For I don't know, just like the overall look of all the actors in the movie, it's like so believable. Like the world is so lived in, and they just feel like they're a part of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I you almost like that's something you never question in a movie where there's so much to question. Yeah, that these characters fit at this research station yeah so that's that's the scene we picked today it gets you the tension it gets you the psychology it gets you the the philosophy of what's at play with this kind of threat and you get some great effects some great puppet work you get real dynamite real fire Mm -hmm. and uh and even even some mildly comedic beats 
in an otherwise a very very tense movie yeah it kind of covers every all the bases that we like to talk about on the show so uh you know we kind of struggled with our halloween pick this year but the thing just kind of stood out as something that we got to talk about we have so much to say Mm -hmm. and we hope that you all agree and we hope that you enjoy this episode absolutely and uh with that we can probably transfer over into shout outs uh tay do you want to go first sure uh so i like i said my shout out was going to be like initially when we first decided to do the thing it was going to be the result of that dynamite throw by kurt russell um but because it was fit it fit in our scene i wanted to talk about it there instead so i'm going to just quickly dive into a subsection of the special effects and that is that the legendary stan winston actually kind of cameoed as a special effects artist in this film it was kind of before he really struck it big Hmm. you know with movies like terminator edward scissorhands aliens two of those three he was nominated for oscars one of which he won uh we're talking about one of the most legendary special effects artists of all time in stan winston and he only came in because rob boutine who's only 21 when they were shooting this movie which is mind-blowing crazy Rob Boutine was in charge of all the monster effects, but literally had to be hospitalized with ulcers and from exhaustion because he was being so overworked with his team. So they brought in Stan Winston, who refused credit on the film. Instead, he just has a special thank you credit at the end. Uh, But he came in and did some of the original dog thing, like the stuff with the dog turning into the thing in the kennel shots, uh, where there is like a man and a puppet. There's radio controlled eyes. Um, and a lot of reverse techniques used to create yeah, some of the tentacles coming out of the dog. Yeah, you like reel them in instead of push yeah. them out, and then you reverse the footage. It's a great exactly. effect. It works every time. And the, it's just crazy that Stan Winston got to come in and do this, and then that this prop fits into everything else happening in the same scene where he wasn't working mm-hmm. on a lot of the stuff. So uh, just really cool, like special cameo shout-out to Stan Winston, uh, yeah, a true another, legend in cinema. Yeah, another bona fide in their... Uh, in the legacy of this movie special effects without a doubt it's why they stand the test of time my uh shout out is uh dog acting uh i want to talk about jed the uh the wolf dog who plays yeah who plays the like the primary the the first iteration of the thing in this movie that uh that is fleeing the norwegian lab being shot at trying people trying to blow it up and then makes friends with clark and hangs around and gets to know everybody, and then it uh, it uh, gets in with the dogs and starts trying to assimilate them. There are a number of sequences in the first act of, of this movie where it's just the dog building tension by walking slowly, by looking on at, at certain cues where it's supposed to look uh, to make a, a suspicious enemy. You know, he's surveilling the people around him. He's He's watching out for threats. He's seeing what they're learning. There's a great shot where like they're they're looking at something and then it cuts to him looking at them and right. you, you you intuit that this dog is keeping an eye on them uh and i think the dog does a does an incredible job it's very tense very spooky and you said on the commentary there there was a lot of great insight about about how jed was as a as an actor and how how he had to be directed or lack thereof well even kurt russell was very complimentary towards the dog acting and then carpenter just kind of had to say yeah i didn't even do much this is all the dog <laughs> Uh, I barely had to direct anything. The animal, the animal trainers barely had to do anything with Jed. Apparently, after a certain point, the dog became just like uh, non-influenced by the presence of the camera. Mm-hmm. So they could do all these like nice dolly, all this nice dolly work without the dog ever looking at the camera. 
the famous hallway shot that you're talking about, Carpenter just said that was four or five takes. Yeah, no which problem. Is, which is wild. You don't you don't necessarily get what you want in four or five takes from seasoned actors. There's a reason why the expression "don't work with children and animals" exists in film, and this is part of the problem. You don't know kind of what you're going to get from animal actors, and in this case, they just got very lucky, or it was a very good decision on the casting department's yeah. side. Yeah, no, Jed Jed is a very talented actor. In addition to not being distracted by the camera and not needing a lot of direction, according to Ethan Hawke, he's a prime example of how to be surprised. Um, <laughs> we'll link to an article where it's all about Ethan Hawke talking about when he worked with Jed on the movie White Fang, um, how this dog was better at acting surprised to things than any other actor he's ever worked with and something that he still thinks about when he has to you know, act like he had, he doesn't know what's coming, even though you've read the script. Right. And I guess maybe the dog, maybe Jed didn't read the script. Maybe he's, he just, he does everything in situ. He's very mm-hmm. method, very method. By I the think look probably of it. all dog actors are pretty method, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but uh, I wanted to, I wanted to shout out Jed cause I think he does a great job and he's critical to that tension in the first act. And dogs are such a big part of the movie, like you said. So mm-hmm. you know what we need to, we need to focus on them a bit in the podcast today. Yeah. And then, uh, so before we jump over to our recommendations, we do want to let you know about what we're going to talk about on the next episode. We're going to talk about Mean Girls. A little bit of a jump. It's certainly a jump, but I think both of the movies play a lot with trust and how you feel about other people. <laughs> uh, maybe to di- varying degrees of consequences and uh, different things at stakes. But, you know, it can feel like the world's ending when you're in high school, so... I was going to say, maybe not that far off. Maybe not that far off. Uh, So, I mean, we're going to get back to Rachel McAdams after just a couple episodes away, which would be great. Written by Tina Fey and directed by Mark Waters. It's definitely a fun movie. We wanted to do something a little bit lighter. So we're going to look into some high school movies and things like that for the the next two. So make sure to uh, watch Mean Girls in the next couple weeks, and then you can hear us talk about it. Yeah, we thought we'd give you guys a generous heads up this time. Mm Mm-hmm. It would make sense. It's surprising we haven't done that so far. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, for our recommendations, uh, I'm 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 following a, a very direct tangent from the thing. Another movie about uh, aliens um, taking over your body, becoming a double of you, um, sowing mistrust among a community. Uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, directed by Philip Kaufman, the '78 version. It's probably my top ten favorite movies ever. Wow! I love it to death. I think it's so scary. I think it's really effective. I'm a big fan of Don Sutherland. Big Donnie. Yeah, Big Donnie. Big fan. Uh, he's got a great perm in that. Uh, Leonard Nimoy, Jeff Goldblum. It's a it's a fantastic movie. I want to talk about it in an episode at some point, but we gotta wait maybe till next Halloween or the Halloween after. We'll get around there eventually. Yeah, a good pick though in terms of kind of crossing over with some of the themes from the mm-hmm. thing. Uh, a lot about a lot of that movie is so much about the fear of being infected mm-hmm. and assimilated. Yeah, uh, and I would agree that it's one of my personal scariest films ever yeah. as well. Just in terms of like the fear that it mm-hmm. generates in me. A completely different uh, dog-based scary effect. Ah, but yeah. We'll we'll, uh, we'll leave that to the viewers to to watch, <laughs> and we'll, we'll come back to that yeah. at some point. What's uh, what's what's your pick this time? Well, uh, just going off of the theme of movies similar to The Thing, I am going to change my pickup on the fly to focus on a 2011 film called Attack the Block, a mm-hmm. uh, 2011 movie by Joe Cornish. I think that this is a movie I would love to talk about on the pod at some yeah. point as well. Uh, but if you don't know what this movie is, I highly recommend you just seek it out and watch it for yourself yeah. uh, to kind of see some of the similarities. But 
in short premise, it's about an alien creature crash landing in the, a London ghetto, essentially. Yeah. And uh, it's about a bunch of inner city kids who have to take a stand and fight this uh, horde of aliens. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a very different take. Do not take my brief synopsis as something that or, or that this movie is like something schlocky or overly simplistic. There's a lot more to it. A very clever film. I have recently also read that there's a sequel in the works okay. uh, after, you know, 10 years plus. So mm-hmm. there is something to maybe keep an eye on as well. If you haven't seen it, highly recommend checking out Attack the Block. Yeah. Great creature design in that. Fantastic creature design. I do have to return to that. I haven't seen it in a while, but it was lots of fun. And uh, with that, we will ask, as always, if you're on iTunes, give us a review. Give us a couple stars. Five stars would be great. You know, let let people know what you like about the podcast. What makes us different from other movie podcasts? If if it feels like we're offering a differentiator. And uh, as always, if you have input, if there's, if you want to let us know what scene you would have picked in a movie that uh, we talked about or a uh, fun fact that we didn't know about something from your research, please shoot us an email. If we get enough emails, we'll start doing a mailbag component to the episodes at the end where we can sort of look back on the last couple episodes and thoughts that people had about our discussion or things that they would have talked about. Yeah, and if you have any recommendations for what we should talk about later on the podcast, please feel free to shoot us uh, some ideas as well. We are always looking to hear back from our audience, so Mm -hmm. please feel free. Yeah, as always, we look forward to hearing about what you watch this week on Instagram. Every Sunday we do a roundup, so uh, get in on that. Yeah, always nice seeing that stuff. Yeah, and uh, I suppose to uh, wrap it up, we'll just say, you know, you can only trust yourself. (laughs) But, uh, you know, don't be too hasty to uh, break out the (laughs) flamethrower.